best, the most glory. Uh, give, give all that we are. I pray as we move into this time of looking at your word that we would, again, have that same heart attitude of that whoever we are, whatever we do, it really does all belong to you. We are who you've made us to be. Uh, we don't always live up to that, and yet we want to strive for that. We know your Spirit's working in us towards that. And so as we look again at the characteristics of uh, disciples, characteristics of followers, who we're supposed to be as the church, I pray again we'd understand none of this is conjured up by more self-effort. This isn't a self-help series. This is a spirit empowerment series of, of the Spirit, looking to see what the Spirit is doing in us, trying to form in us, and then us submitting to that forming and, and agreeing with it and working in conjunction with it. So thank you again. And would you open our eyes to see uh, your words and what they mean and understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. So youth group is out. They're at Winterfest this weekend. Uh, Andrew's on yet another vacation, I guess. And uh tell you, I told him he should work more hours next week since, she, since he got this break this weekend. And uh, no, Actually, I told him the opposite. I said, after you get back from a winter retreat, you should take a little extra time and recover because I've been there. And uh, if you play broomball long enough, your body's going to hurt. I don't care if you're in your early 20s or not, but shoot. Um, so, uh, anyway, if you continue to praying for them for a safe trip back and, and just a meaningful last, you know, thing at Winterfest, I know that every youth pastor's heart is that the kids, the teenagers, bring this stuff back and apply it and, and use it, and that it, that it shapes them and, and changes them. That is not just something that happened at a retreat, but something that has shaped who I am and where I'm going. So, please be praying about that. Okay. So we're in part three of description of a disciple. Um, as I was praying, you may, if, you're, if you're new here or if you're catching up a little bit, we've been talking about the Beatitudes. Beatitudes are just statements of blessing. These are who the blessed people are. These are who my people are supposed to be. So what do disciples look like? What should the church look like? Well, they should look like the Beatitudes, now, what I've done here in your notes, and I don't have the graphic. I, I couldn't convert this well enough for um, the, the slideshow, but it, you have one in your, in your bulletin, and it has a triangle or a mountain, if you will. This is one conception of how to look at the Beatitudes. And so I want to I walk through this and see if this makes sense to you. I mean, I'm not saying this is, this is exactly how Jesus intended it. I'm just saying this is... Human beings trying to understand these spiritual words of truth that Jesus said. So, we've looked at blessed are the poor in spirit. So you're starting at the bottom of the mountain there. And these first three are very much things that we do in relation to who God is. We're responding to who God is. So blessed are the poor in spirit is, is me coming to God saying, I've got no spiritual currency. In fact, I'm spiritually bankrupt. And, and I'm not going to look at all of my intelligence and all of the uh, my strength, all, all of the money. I'm not looking at any of that stuff that I have. Because when it comes to the spiritual life, I've got nothing. And having nothing standing before God is a bad thing. Unless God is willing to give you of himself and give you grace. So you come before God and you say, 
I, I'm poor in spirit. I, I've, got, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. And, and he gives you living water. He fills you up. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it has to start there. If you think you're sufficient in yourself, there's no way you're going to come to God for help. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, which is number two, you'll never come to God for help. Blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. The mourners come to God and say, I'm spiritually bankrupt. In fact, I filled up my life with, with dirty things, with sinful things, things that you hate, things that you despise, and that makes me mourn. I, I have an emotional reaction to the fact that I have messed things up. I have broken your laws. And then you repent. You repent of that. And then you can go on to blessed are the meek as you're scaling the mountain. Blessed are the meek. So, so meek people are humble, gentle, kind, courteous. They don't think more of themselves than they should. They put other people first. If they're strong, if they're intelligent, if they're wealthy, if, they're, if they have influence, they use it for other people. They use it to help other people. They don't use it to get themselves ahead, even though they probably, in some sense, you do take care of your family based on your intelligence, based on your ability. You take care of your family. I, I understand that. That's great. But it's not just a way of advancing me. It's a way of helping others. So you're meek. If you realize you have no spiritual currency and, you, and you're a dirty sinner and God needs to give you living water and take your sins away, then, then you can look at yourself with humility and say, I'm not really that great. But whatever I do have, I want to use for the benefit of others. That's the meek person. That's the meek person. Okay? Now you reach the pinnacle of the mountain. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now you're saying, I want Jesus' characteristics in my life. I have a desire for Christ. I want to know him better. I want to live out his life in a fuller way in my life. Fill me up with that righteousness. We talked about righteousness being legal in that God says you're not guilty of sin that there's that kind of righteousness. But there's other kind that says, I want to do righteousness. I want to live righteousness. And Jesus says, I'll fill you up with that too. I'll help you do that. It's not a Pharisee, try harder. You know, I think um, in the church we do get in a rut of, well, if things aren't going well, I'm just going to try harder. I'll work harder at that. No, it's, can I submit to the Spirit in me who will work in me to do this? this righteousness, these good things. It's not about trying harder. So I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and God is filling me up. What are some of the things he's filling me with? Well, now we're coming down the mountain, and we're dealing primarily with how I relate to other people in my life. The first three I was really relating to God. I'm poor in spirit, mourning, meek. I'm hungering for Christ. Christ is filling me up. Now I'm coming down the mountain, and... Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are you that show mercy to other people. For you will be shown mercy by God. And then it's, blessed are the pure in heart. For you're going to see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. You, you can't show mercy to God. Okay, I mean, that should be clear. You come to God poor in spirit. You come to God mourning, but 
you can't give God mercy because He doesn't do any, any sin. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need your mercy. Mercy is what you do for other people. So a lot of people view these next three coming down the mountain as what I do to other people in my life, how I interact with people. And then you come to the bottom, which is persecuted. And this, this is great. This is just great. Um, blessed are the persecuted. Um, persecution is what people do to you, okay? It's what people do to you. So I just want you to catch, I don't think it's the humor, I don't think it's humor that Jesus is going for, maybe irony, but it's like, I'm poor in spirit before God, I'm mourning over sin, I'm meek, and then I get merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker, I'm hungry and thirsty for righteousness. People see this in my life, and what do they do? They persecute you, you know? Like, you would think, these are the people that they would say, we all want to be like this. No, instead they say, we want to hurt you. We want to oppose that. That's actually the worldly response to living the Beatitudes and living like Jesus' disciple. Okay, so, um, we're going to jump in here and do blessed are the merciful first. Um, I I hope that the mountain thing is helpful in thinking through this. I, I think it's also helpful to see the progression a little bit. And we're still going. God, what are you going to fill me with? I'm hungering for righteousness. What will you fill me with? Well, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Okay, so what is mercy? Mercy is an expression of pity and compassion which relieves the results of sin. Grace is a little different. So let's talk about the two. Mercy is, I see the problem that you're in. I see the effects of the sin in your life. And I feel compassion on you. I see what other people did to you. How they sinned against you. And I want to help you in mercy. It's pity and compassion. And it sees that sin has done some bad things in your life. Now if you talk about mercy from God, we mean His help. But we also mean when we sin, we deserve judgment. We deserve His wrath. And in His mercy, He doesn't give us that stuff. If you ask for His forgiveness, He doesn't give you wrath. He gives you something else. He gives you salvation. He gives you love. Um, grace is different in that it deals with sin more directly. I'm not sure if I like how I wrote that statement, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stand by it. You know, I, I believe that's the way it really is. But if I could rewrite that today, maybe I'd say, Grace... Grace gives you what you don't deserve. Grace says, I'm going to give you salvation. I'm going to give you new life. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you heaven. I'm going to give you a relationship with God. I'm going to give you all these things. Mercy is more like, I'm not going to give you this, this bad stuff. I'm not going to give you all these negative things that you might be fearful of, but you deserve. Bad, not morally bad. Bad, meaning bad what we deserve bad. Wrath. So mercy and grace are, are very related, they're very similar, and yet they are different. Let, let me talk about mercy like this. As we show mercy, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. I can't give God mercy, I give mercy to other people. You can give mercy to other people. What does that look like? Well, think about it like this. When I was in Bible school, one of my ministry assignments was to go to a psychiatric hospital and work with pre-adolescents. So you're talking... 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds. 
and they could voluntarily come to a Bible study if they want to. I mean, they, they weren't forced to go. But if they wanted to talk about God, we were there to do that. If we want to talk about forgiveness, we were there to do that. So they freely came. We usually had anywhere from 10 to 15 pre-adolescents, guys and girls that would come into that room, listen to a Bible lesson, and then we'd let them ask questions. You can imagine we got heartbreaking questions in that room. Like, why did my dad do this to me? Those kind of questions. But as you looked around the room, you also had another painful realization. Not only are there children in this room that have been abused, but there are children in this room that are abusive. They're the ones attacking others. One child said that he was in there because, and I won't tell you the whole story, but it involved locking his teacher up in a closet. You know, I mean, and there were other things that he did that I'm not going to repeat on a Sunday morning. But, you know, you'd hear these stories come out and you'd realize, I've got 15 kids. Some of them, actually, I'd say all of them are victims in some way. I'd say the abusive ones have been victims also of things. But some of them are acting out in ways that are abusive and some of them just need help because they've been hurt so deeply. Some of them may be sent there because they're such a pro- they are such a problem in their home or in their school. But no matter whether they're the quote-unquote perpetrators, I know it's not that simple, but whether they're the perpetrators or whether they're the victims, they all need mercy. They all need people to say, you know that violent thing that you did? That was, that was wrong. But in mercy, I'm going to love you. I'm going to care about you. I'm going to speak with you. I'm going to consider you friend. They, they, they need that. Whether they're a victim or whether they're a perpetrator. If they're a victim, we kind of understand that because that, that gets our heart going. In mercy, we're like, oh yeah, they've been the victim of sin. We've got to come alongside them and help them. But no matter whether... now. Let's fast forward. Uh, let's fast forward 20, 20 years. What if that child is now still a victim in their adulthood? They're still being hurt by people. I think a lot of us, our heart would still be torn, and we'd still say, in my pity and compassion, I want to help them. Fast forward the abusive kids, the violent kids, 20 years, and they're still being violent. A lot of times that's where we close our heart a little more, don't we? And we say, well, those you just got to lock up, you know. And I'm not saying don't pursue justice. I'm thankful for the justice system. I'm only saying, can we still have a heart of mercy for those that need it because they're acting so badly, because they're acting so sinfully and they know of no better way? They need mercy too. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. The idea is, if you can be merciful for other people, God will be merciful with you, because you've offended him in many, many ways, millions of ways. In the Bible, when we talk about mercy, um, I just want to highlight a few things about it. Um, When Jesus went around healing people, what was one of the most common expressions to get his attention? Jesus, have mercy. Mercy on us. 
take pity on us. I think theologically that's a great statement to make because sickness is a result of the sin in this world. No sin, no sickness. In heaven there'll be no sin. In heaven there'll be no sickness. Right? Have mercy on us. Take pity on us. And I love it because they don't come before God like, I deserve it. I demand it. Jesus, heal me. You know, not a, nobody comes to Jesus like that. At least not, maybe there's a story I'm not thinking of, but it seems like all the healing stories I know of and all the ones I was looking up that have to do with mercy, they're people saying, I don't deserve it. It's the Canaanite woman that asked for her daughter to be healed. And Jesus says, uh, you know, uh, you, can't, you can't give, uh, I, I can't do that. I'm, I'm here for the people of Israel. And then she says, even, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. Remember that one, you know? And then and Jesus performs the healing. I don't deserve this, but I'm asking for mercy. I'm asking for help. Would you help me, Lord? Of course, I've talked already about how we're saved by mercy. Uh, this is Titus 3.5. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. God looks at us. He sees us in our sin, all the wrong things that we've done, and, 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 he, and, he, and he feels for us. That's pretty amazing that he feels pity on the fact that I've messed things up so badly. It's his mercy that saves us. Uh, Romans 9.23 say we're the objects of his mercy. Uh, one more I think I want to talk about here. How about this? Some of you have the gift of mercy, right? Now, I'm not preaching spiritual gifts, but I think it's worthwhile just to stop for a second and talk to you. Some of you have the gift of mercy. That is, you see people in trouble, you see people that have been devastated by the effects of their own sin, and you don't feel like shaking your finger at them, you feel like helping them. That's awesome. That's great. Do that. Somehow, of course, we have to balance. You learn lessons from sin in your life. Just because you're forgiven by God doesn't mean there's legal requirements of our legal system that won't take effect. Justice needs to be done. God gave us a government. We're thankful for the justice system. So, so, so there's laws and there's justice, but there's also hearts that are just huge for people that have messed up their lives. Thank God that you're in this building. Thank God that you're here and that you want to help other people. Do that. Relieve suffering. Those people that have gotten themselves into a mess financially and they don't have what they need to provide for themselves. Some of you that have gifts of mercy, you want to help. You want to buy them food. You want to buy them clothing. You want to do something. That's awesome. That's amazing. Thank you. I thank the Spirit that He gave gifts of mercy to some of you. But bigger than that, we're all called to have mercy on people. Blessed are the merciful. I hope that when you are sinned against, and, uh, and here I'll lead into the problem, when you're sinned against, the natural reaction is, I'm angry at what you did to me, and I'd like to pay you back. That's, that's in the flesh. The problem, so we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, none of the Beatitudes are like just natural talents. You know, I just happen to be a very merciful guy. No, actually by nature, we get mad when we're sinned against, and we like to pay people back. You spoke bad about me, I'm going to tell all my friends what you said about me so they all think you're a bad person. We can all agree you sinned against me. I'm going to tell everybody about it. 
And I'm going to say it's spiritual because we need to pray for you. You know, whatever. Um, we want vengeance. That's a problem. God says, Romans 12:19, leave vengeance to me. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We've got to set that desire to get people back aside and say, how can I have compassion for this person? How can I take pity on this person? Can I forgive this person for what they've done? Mercy always leads to forgiveness. It always leads to forgiveness. How do you become merciful? And then we're going to move on to the next one. How do you become merciful? I think it starts, I mean, I can't say everything that it is, but I think it starts with considering all the mercy that God has had on you. I think that's where it has to start. If you start making the tally of your sins and then think that God would have sent you to hell for those things forever in a place of torment and that now he's not doing that, that's pretty amazing. And hopefully that fuels your mercy for other people. Let's move on. Boy, this one this one could have been its own five-part sermon series. Um, I don't even know what this means, but let's look at it anyway. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Uh, what in the world does that even mean? Well, pure in heart, we're, we're talking about a heart issue, right? So we talked about being poor in spirit. So, so I'm spiritually poor before God. This is... I'm pure in heart. Internally, I have purity. So certainly that's talking about moral purity. What am I thinking about? What am I doing as a result of what I'm thinking about? Purity. So so there's a moral cleanness that it's talking about. But certainly it's also talking about having an undivided heart. David prays for an undivided heart. So purity of heart refers to our inward self being morally clean and undivided. I'm not, you know, back then we, they talk about idols. We would talk about idols today and things that we love more than God. Is your heart undivided? Do you have a soul love just for God? Um, let's talk about this a little bit in Scripture, and I'll have you turn to one passage. If you would turn to Genesis uh, I'm sorry, Exodus 33. Exodus 33. This is one of those passages that probably ought to be in every Sunday school class, but I feel like we don't talk about it a lot. I never really noticed it uh, until I was a pastor, really. And, and it's like, that's, it's great. Exodus 33. Let's start in verse 18, shall we? So, uh, we, previously, the scriptures had just said that Moses, when he was leading the people of Israel in the wilderness, he would meet with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. It also says Moses was the most meek and humble person on the earth. Um, so, so God honored him and, and revealed himself to him in pretty amazing ways. This one day, Moses says... Um, Moses said, now show me your glory. Show me your glory. It's like, Moses, you've had all these experiences of God, burning bush, meeting face to face. What more can you have? I mean, 
the Israelites didn't get the burning bush thing. The Israelites didn't get to meet with God in a tent face to face. They didn't get all these amazing spiritual experiences that you and I would love to have. And it still wasn't enough for Moses. Like, like getting that much, he just wanted more. And so he says, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back. But my face must not be seen. Okay, I mean, just just amazing story. So Moses wants more of God. He hasn't had enough of him. There's always going to be more. I kind of hope that in heaven we're going to have this fullness of, of, of being with God and yet we're still going to want more. We're always going to want more of him. There's no end to him. He's infinite. And Moses says, show me your glory. Show me your beauty. Show me. And God says, I know exactly what you're asking me. You want to see my face. But you can't see my face. Otherwise, you'll die. So instead, I'm going to put you in this rock. I'm going to cover the rock with my hand. And then I'm going to pass by. And then I'll uncover you. And then you can look and see the back of me. And then God says, I'm going to proclaim my name. I'm going to proclaim my name. And you notice what his name is. His name is... I will, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He's the God who mercies people. He mercies whoever he wants to mercy. That's pretty amazing. Like God's like, I want to reveal to you exactly who I am. This is exactly who I am. I have mercy on people. That's pretty cool. And so, and so Moses sees this. He experiences this. So let's make a few conclusions about this, okay? And you have these in your notes. What does it mean to see God? Well, the fact is, we long to see God. We want to see God's face. Even if you met with God in a tent face to face, which is more than what we see on a Sunday morning, even if you were meeting like that, you'd still want more. You'd long for His face. And yet, B is, if you see God's face, you'll die. We can't see God's face and live, but we want to. Part C. God's physical being is connected with his name and his character. Who God is is connected with seeing him. I say physical being as if I know what that even means, because we'll keep looking here. Part D, people saw the face of the angel of the Lord. I mean, in the Old Testament, they would, God would take on a, on a shape and a body, and people would see the face of the angel of the Lord. Jacob was worried he was going to die when he realized who he was looking at. E, Jesus reveals God's face to us. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So to see Jesus is to see God. That's really encouraging. F, God is invisible. That's Colossians 1.15. He's the invisible God. And yet John 5.37 says he has form. Well, that's very mysterious. He's invisible and yet he has form. And apparently Moses saw something of that form that day. G, our seeing is partial in this life. In heaven, it will be face to face. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve says, I see in a mirror dimly, but then I will see face to face. Part of the beauty of heaven is that Jesus is there, God is there, 
and in some mysterious way, we are going to see his face. Read Revelation. You see it there. H, in heaven, Revelation 22, 4 says, we will see him face to face. Is that referring to Jesus? Am I seeing the spirit of God's face? Can I see the invisible God in heaven? There's a promise that I'm going to see him face to face. It's bigger than I can comprehend. Conclusion. Seeing God is an experience of seeing God. I mean, it really does mean, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, does mean they will see God. But in a sense, it also refers to intimacy with him. It's closeness with him. Now think about this. In a very practical sense, I'm just making it bottom line. I've thought about this verse in the past in my life and I thought, the purity of my heart. I mean, I know that I'm saved in Christ and I've been given Jesus righteousness and I'm completely pure. But on a practical, everyday level, my intimacy with God, my closeness with Him is connected to what's going on in the purity of my heart. Okay? I will see more of God as my heart is pure. So when you fight spiritual battles with temptation and lust and and all of the things that might make you impure, jealousy, anger, hate, anger could be good, by the way, but hate, you are fighting a battle for the purity of your heart. And the consequence of winning those battles is I'm closer with God. The consequence of not fighting those battles and giving in to temptation and having an impure heart is distance from God. You want to know why God doesn't seem very close? This could be an answer. It's not always the answer. It could be an answer. I think in cross-training, one of my questions, if you stay for cross-training after this, one of the questions is, what happens if you have purity of heart and you still feel distant from God? Because that could be too. I hope you see the stakes and why it's good to fight for purity. This is a classic youth ministry example. Um, Set up my prop here. In youth ministry... The story goes that some youth pastor cooked a plate of brownies, okay? Handed them all out before he was teaching. You, some of you know exactly where I'm going with this. <laughs> he cooks a plate of brownies, hands them out to all the teenagers in the youth group, and they're all eating. They're all eating their brownies. And then he starts teaching. And he says, those brownies that I made, I took a speck, excuse me, I'm spitting, a speck of human excrement and I mixed it in with the batter. How do you feel about that? And all the kids are spitting it out, you know, and they're grabbing napkins and, you know, stuff's flying everywhere, right? Horrible. And then he says, how much is the purity of your heart worth to you? You know, how important is that to you? I mixed it up in the batter. I mean, what's the chances you're going to taste some of it? What's the chances it's going to affect you? Probably nothing, right? doesn't matter. The fact that I know what's in there bothers me. The fact that I know what's there bothers me. Do we care about our purity that much? Now, of course, the youth pastor didn't actually do that because no good youth pastor would, right? But, but, <laughs> I was once uh, 
Let's do a real life story, right? That's better, right? I was talking with a guy uh, in seminary that used to work at a pretzel company. And if I named the name of the company, you'd all know the one I'm talking about, by the way. But I won't because I don't do that. I'm not going to rip into any pretzel companies. <laughs> okay? But he worked for the company, and they'd make the pretzels, you know, and they'd have quality control people, and they would come in and test the flour and the ingredients for the pretzels. And he'd say, every time, you know, they'd be testing the ingredients, and there would always be a microscopic percentage of insect material in the pretzel stuff, you know, in the ingredients. It just, that's just the way it is. They just fly in, and, and, and there they are. And it would be microscopic, but it would be there. I asked him if he still ate pretzels. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I eat pretzels. No, no big deal. Does it matter? Does it matter? Does the impurity in my heart bother me? Does it bother me enough that not only will I try not to commit acts of impurity, but I'll even guard my heart? And when I see something coming up that's jealousy or hate or lust, I'll take that thought captive to Christ, as the Bible says. Here's what I've done. I should, have done, I should have made this more spiritual. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, sometimes when thoughts come into my mind, you know, I, I don't always win those battles. Let's just be real about that. But the times that I have and I feel like I've taken thoughts captive, sometimes I even I visualize like a, like, a, like a red X. I don't know why it's a red X. I have no idea why. Now you're going to worry about my psychological health. But I visualize this red X kind of over whatever I'm thinking of. And, and I kind of look at it like, get rid of that. I've got to get rid of that. Now, if I was more spiritual, it probably would have been a cross, you know. And I, I just visualize that. And, it, and I ask Jesus to help me, you know. And he helps. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. Absolutely not. But we've got to fight the battle for our hearts if we're going to win the battle over our actions. It's, it's got to be that way. And we have to see that our intimacy with God is at stake. Our closeness with Him. What is intimacy with God? How do you see God's face today? Uh, I hope you see Him when you read the Bible. I hope you see Him when you pray. I hope that you see Him when you're in nature, when, when you're walking in the woods, when you're snowmobiling. I hope, I hope you feel a closeness to Him. I hope you discern His hand in your life, guiding you and leading you and like, oh, that was an interesting conversation I didn't plan on having. I wonder if God orchestrated that. I hope you discern his hand. I hope that you become one of those people that he uses to orchestrate spiritual conversations and actions. And people say, you did that, but I know it was God. I hope that you experience those moments of closeness with him. Um, how do you begin? Uh, by the way, you know, later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to address lust and impurity. We'll go there. But if you were going to say, what's your first step? What's the first step? Um, I'd say you begin by um, d- this, this desiring uh, a closeness uh, of joys and intimacy with him. It, it's seeking and savoring Christ. I say you begin by trying to get an appetite for Jesus. So that at the end of the day, if it comes down to my impurity or Jesus, I want Jesus. Okay, I want Jesus. And if I have to walk through life being distant from Jesus because I have this impurity over here, that's not good enough for me. I want Jesus. I think it has to start there, that Jesus is better than the impurity. 
He's better. If you don't really think He's better, you probably won't turn from the impurity. Again, if this brings up lots of issues like what are practical steps I can take, you know, there's lots of practical steps you can take. We'll talk about those in a few weeks when we get to that part of the Sermon on the Mount. But there are actions you should take. There are ways to cut your hand off and pluck out your eye. Go to extremes, basically. You should. But if you don't desire Christ, if you're not starting to dig into the Word and pray and and seeking Him with all of your heart, impurity is going to always seem like the better offer. And that should break our hearts. That should cause us to mourn. If you want to talk more about that issue, I'm always open to talking. Let's do that. Let me invite the worship team to come up. And let's sing a song that I pray is what's really in our hearts regarding the issue of purity. Praise God that he gives you Jesus purity. So, so at the end of the day, every day, you can say, I'm really righteous. That, that's God declared it of me. Now I want to live righteous. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we would be so overcome by what you've done for us that it would make impurity look like it really is. Not the best thing. <laughs> 